0: Mary I of England died in 1558, she was succeeded by her half-sister, Elizabeth. And as Queen Elizabeth I, she ranks alongside Henry VIII as probably the most famous Tudor monarch, and in polls regularly stands out as one of England's greatest sovereigns. The Elizabethan age saw England step out onto the world stage, full of confidence and daring. You know, voyages of discovery to new lands, Francis Drake circumnavigating the globe, English settlers arriving in North America, new commercial ventures such as the East India Company, establishing new trading routes and introducing exotic goods to England. It was an age of high fashion and an explosion in theatre. Christopher Marlowe, Thomas Kidd, William Shakespeare, and it was the defeat of the Spanish Armada. And yet, whilst Elizabeth basks in this aura of England's golden age, if we flip the same coin over, on the other side we find her cousin once removed, whose story is far less glorious, far more poignant and full of what might have beens. This is the story of Elizabeth I and Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary was born on the 14th of December, 1542, at Linlithgow Castle, near Edinburgh. Her father was King James V of Scotland, the son of King James IV of Scotland, and his wife, Margaret Tudor. Mary's father, James, had been King of Scotland since he was about one year old, after his father and Henry VIII's brother-in-law had invaded England in support of, England, uh, of Scotland's old alliance with France, and had been killed at the Battle of Field. Now, if you thought that having a one-year-old was bad news in those times, worse was to come because Mary's father, James of Hith, died just six days after Mary was born. And despite her age, the tiny baby princess was proclaimed Queen of Scotland, the first queen regnant in Scotland's history, beating England, by the way, by 11 years. And she was crowned the following year when she was just 10 months old. Because of her tender years, a regency was declared until she would be old enough to govern in her own right. The regency, as we've seen in some of my previous talks about England's regencies, uh, it was a, an opportunity for powerful nobles to increase their own wealth and power in the realm. And just like in England, this was the case now in Scotland. But it, was also, um, it also revealed the crucial fault lines in Scottish society and politics at that time, because Scotland was in the throes of its own Protestant Reformation. Unlike in England, where Henry VIII had sort of taken political control of the religious debate, up in Scotland, it was more of a free-for-all. Preachers like John Knox advocated a radical form of Protestantism, similar to the Puritans down in England and the Calvinists and Lutherans in in Germany and Switzerland. And meanwhile, the young queen and her mother, Mary of Guise, were uh, staying loyal to the Roman Catholic Church. And that religious split was played out by the rival factions as each sought control over the infant queen. Added to that was another layer of intrigue between the the pro-English and the pro-French factions at the court. Now, similar sort of, you know, factionalism would be seen down in England at the end of the decade when Henry died and his young, Edward, uh, young son Edward VI ascended to the throne. At this juncture in our story, Henry VIII was still very much alive and king of England, and his young son Edward was just five years older than Mary. And that gave Henry a plan. A marriage between the two young royals. Initially, Scottish negotiators accepted uh, this treaty, but when they returned to Scotland, uh, they found that the Parliament there was far less enthusiastic. In fact, uh, the deal with with their overbearing southern neighbour was rejected out of hand. And that overbearing southern neighbour reacted in character. Henry went to war with Scotland. The conflict, which is so-called the rough wooing, was still going on when Henry finally died and Edward came to the throne in 1547. So, (laughs) now we're in this situation where England was ruled by a king who was nine and a half, and their northern neighbour by a queen who was just four and a half. Whether anyone in England still entertained a possible royal marriage is not clear. What, however, was clear was, was that there was a war to be fought and won. And in the following year, 1548, the English under uh, the Lord Protector, Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset, advanced into Scotland and won a resounding victory at the Battle of Pinky near Edinburgh. It was the last major battle fought between the nations of England and Scotland. But this English aggression had two effects in Scotland. Firstly, it strengthened the hand of the pro-French faction in court, uh, especially when France then sent troops to help counter the English advance. Secondly, and far more importantly for our story, that the Scots realised quite frankly that Scotland was too dangerous for their young queen. And so that very same year, Mary was packed off to her mother's native France for safety. She wasn't to return to Scotland for 13 years. 10 years later in France, 1558, Mary married Francis, the Dauphin of France, the heir to the French throne. And a year later, Francis succeeded to that throne. So there was Mary, age 17, queen in her own right in Scotland, queen consort in France, and interestingly also with a claim to the English throne too. By now things had moved on in England. Edward VI had died, his half-sister Mary had been and gone, and now Elizabeth was Queen of England. And so begins one of those fascinating chapters in history, when those old adversarial neighbours, Scotland and England, were ruled by two charismatic women. I said earlier that Mary had a claim to the English throne, and here's how. Her grandmother was sister to Henry VIII. Henry had three children from three of his six wives, yet the king had divorced Catherine of Aragon, mother of Mary, and, by doing so, had announced that Mary was illegitimate. He moved on to wife number two, Anne Boleyn, and she gave birth to Elizabeth. Anne fell foul of Henry after just a few years, and the marriage was annulled, and Anne Boleyn was beheaded. And as a result of that marriage being annulled, Elizabeth was declared illegitimate as well. Finally, the longed-for male heir, Edward, arrived thanks to wife number three, Jane Seymour, who died after giving birth. As Henry was now a widower, he could move on not only to, you know, wife number four, but also number five and number six. Crucially, young Edward was considered legitimate. Well, legitimate with one caveat, which we'll come back to in a moment. Despite refusing to recognise either of his daughters as legitimate, Henry did place them in the line of succession. By an act of parliament, Mary and Elizabeth were numbers two and three behind Edward, and his heirs. And as Edward died without any heirs, Mary was the next in line. Due to England's own Protestant reformation against Catholicism, Edward had attempted to prevent Mary uh, ascending the throne by naming his cousin once removed from Henry's younger sister, his heir, Lady Jane Grey. And despite her being proclaimed queen in London, Lady Jane's reign lasted a full nine days before Mary entered the capital in uh, splendor. Now, with Mary dying childless after her five-year reign, it was Elizabeth's turn. Are you with me so far? This all sort of makes sense if you accept Elizabeth's place in the line of succession. And Protestant English men and women did. But Elizabeth had been considered illegitimate. Moreover, Henry VIII's first marriage to Catherine of Aragon had never been annulled by the Pope. Yet it was this refusal by the Pope that Henry had used as a pretext to break away from Rome. So to those English subjects who remained Catholic, this was a major problem. Basically, without papal authority otherwise, that first marriage was still legally binding and all the other five marriages were invalid. And thus to many Catholics in England and elsewhere in Europe, the only true heir to Henry was the daughter of his very first marriage, Mary. And she was now dead. So who was next in line? Elizabeth, as the Catholics saw it, wasn't eligible. Whatever the old king had dictated in his act of succession. Who was the next Catholic in the family tree? Well, both by following the line of the uh, the eldest of Henry's siblings and also discounting the offspring of his younger sister, who were Protestants, we come down the line from Margaret Tudor into the Royal House of Scotland, the Stuarts, and down to Mary, Queen of Scots. Now we can get into lots of debate and now is not the time, but many Catholics in Europe and England saw Mary not just in the line of succession, but as the rightful Queen of England, right here, right now. In fact, Her father-in-law had added the Lions of England to her French coat of arms, which already contained the Lion of Scotland and the French fleur-de-lis. For Mary, therefore, this wasn't some sort of pub or university debate. This was real, and she saw her claim as absolutely valid. Over in England, Queen Elizabeth was all too aware of the danger that this rival posed. And it was this political rivalry that was to set up the tone for their relationship and Mary's ultimate tragedy. Mary's reign as Queen Consort of France ended almost before it began. Francis died after just 16 months on the throne of France. And Mary, who was now just shy of her 20th birthday, was a widow. And there was no role for a young dowager queen in France. And so, in August 1461, Mary set sail for Scotland. She'd been absent for 13 years. One of the classic mistakes in uh, films about Mary, Queen of Scots, is that the the heroine uh, speaks in this beautiful Scottish accent. The reality is, seeing as she'd spent the last 13 years in France, she would probably have spoken with a French accent. But hey, why why spoil a good story? Lack of Scottish accent apart, Mary was, by all accounts, stunning. She was tall. She was 5 foot 11, which was really tall by those standards. She was slender. She had auburn hair and hazel eyes. The young Queen of Scots took over the reins of government from the Regency Council and vowed to reign as a Catholic, but respecting her Protestants, uh, the Protestant will of her people. Radical preachers like John Knox were not so sure that that circle could be squared. He preached against her Catholicism and also argued that having a female monarch went against God's God's order in the world. In July 1565, Mary married a second time, this time to her half-cousin Henry Lord Darnley. At six foot, this long lad, as Queen Elizabeth called him, was a perfect physical match for the Queen. Unfortunately, The physical bit was about all that they did have as a good match. She soon realised that she had married a drunk who wanted to be crowned King of Scotland in his own right and was highly jealous of his wife's position. His jealousy reached a climax when in front of the pregnant Queen he dragged in and stabbed her advisor David Rizzio to death claiming that he was having an affair with the Queen. In front of a pregnant woman. Despite that shock, Mary's pregnancy went full term and in 1566 she gave birth to a son, whom she named James. The marriage, however, was over. Darnley was forced to uh, to move out uh, out of the royal palace uh, to a house in Kirkerfield, just inside the walls of the city of Edinburgh. On the 10th of February, a huge explosion ripped through that house in Kirkerfield. Darnley was found dead in the garden with signs that he'd been smothered but no one was sure whether it was smothered before the explosion or afterwards. All fingers pointed at the estranged wife, the Queen, and also her supporter, James Hepburn, the Earl of Bothwell. Two months later, Bothwell was put on trial, but he was acquitted. And within a matter of weeks of that acquittal, Bothwell had married Mary. The nation was shocked. Europe was shocked. Down in England, Elizabeth was shocked. And John Knox, oh, he was livid. The Protestant preacher railed against this Jezebel of a queen who had married the man who was implicated in her husband's murder just three months beforehand. The mood in Scotland turned ugly and against Mary. An armed force of nobles imprisoned her at Loch Leven Castle in Perthshire. And there, the queen actually miscarried twins. In July 1567, Mary was forced to abdicate in favour of her baby son, James. James was the third successive Scottish monarch to be, be, to be proclaimed before they were two years old. And once more, a regency, regency council, dominated this time by Protestants, would rule Scotland. With no other options left, Mary fled by boat across the Solway Firth to England, landing at Workington in Cumbria. The Queen of the Scots would never see Scotland again. For the next 19 years she was effectively kept under house arrest in England. Her arrival in exile in England presented her new hostess Queen Elizabeth with a major headache. You know on one hand here was a fellow monarch and relative of hers in need. On the other hand Here was someone who had openly claimed Elizabeth's own throne and was seen as a rallying point for many Catholics. And as I say, for the next 19 years, Elizabeth played a balancing act. She kept Mary far enough away from the Scottish border so she couldn't lead an invasion to reclaim her throne, which could also of course lead to repercussions like a counter invasion of England by the Scots. And yet, At the same time, she didn't want her principal royal and Catholic opponent anywhere near the capital, London. So Mary was placed, effectively under house arrest, at Bolton Castle in Yorkshire. And all the while, Elizabeth was faced with regular Catholic conspiracies in which Mary's name was regularly mentioned as her replacement. Within a couple of years of Mary arriving in England, Two prominent Catholic nobles, Charles Neville, the Earl of Westmoreland, and Thomas Percy, Earl of Northumberland, had risen in revolt against Elizabeth in the north of England. This area, far from London, had retained strong Catholic sympathies. Indeed, Henry VIII had faced the pilgrimage of grace from this very area during the Reformation. Now, Percy's army advanced south. They captured Durham and actually celebrated Catholic mass in Durham Cathedral. But before they could capture York, a government army was assembled and in the face of its superior numbers and its firepower, the rebels rapidly dispersed, trying desperately to head to Scotland. Percy was captured and he was beheaded in York. The furious Queen ordered 700 Yorkshire folk to be executed for their parts in the Rising. Now there was no obvious involvement from Mary, but her presence in the north of England was now dangerous. And there followed a series of moves to castles and homes further south in the English Midlands, including uh, Tutbury Castle and Chatsworth in Derbyshire. A year later, the Pope excommunicated Elizabeth, which, you know, considering Elizabeth was a Protestant, she didn't see as a major problem. What was a problem was he also issued a papal bull, which is almost like a a letter, in which he deemed her a heretic. He called Elizabeth the, the pretended Queen of England and he released her Catholic subjects from their oaths of allegiance to her. Unfortunately for Thomas Percy, this papal bull arrived too late to be used in his rebellion, but equally unfortunately, it was seized upon by by the Queen's Protestant supporters and provided a pretext for repression of Catholics, who they now construed as enemies within, taking their orders from a foreign head of government rather than their queen. A third unfortunate from the papal bull. It also inspired another group of Catholics to plot against Elizabeth. Two years after that rising in the north, the Ridolfi plot was uncovered. Masterminded, if that's the right word, by an Italian financier, the plot, uh, called Ridolfi, uh, the plot aimed to transport 10,000 Spanish troops from the Netherlands to England murder Queen Elizabeth, uh, release Queen Mary Queen of Scots, place her on the throne, and then marry Mary to the Queen's cousin, a leading Catholic noble, Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk. The plot was half-baked. I mean, Rodolphi planned to land the Spanish army in Norfolk, but he actually wasn't quite sure where the heck Norfolk was on the map. Nevertheless, the ringleaders were rounded up and Norfolk was beheaded. Once more, Mary claimed total ignorance of this plot. 12 years were to pass before the next serious Catholic conspiracy, the Throckmorton Plot. In 1583, a Catholic member of gentry from the Midlands, Sir Francis Throckmorton, whose cousin was actually a lady-in-waiting to the Queen, hatched a plan to free Mary from her house arrest. And once more, this plan would involve some sort of Spanish invasion. This time Elizabeth's spymaster Francis Walsingham brought together enough evidence to suggest that rather than being some Catholic gentleman's pipe dream or some half-baked uh, Ridolfi plot, the Spanish authorities were somehow involved and the Spanish ambassador was consequently expelled from England. Sir Francis Throckmorton was executed in 1584. His cousin, you know the lady-in-waiting, Bess Throckmorton, was exonerated and actually would end up, a lot later on, marrying Sir Walter Raleigh. As a side note though, uh, two of the gunpowder plot conspirators, Robert Catesby and Francis Tresham, were relatives of Sir Francis, and Throck, the Throckmorton uh, property of Courton Court in Warwickshire was used during that Catholic plot in 1605. In the same year that Throckmorton was executed, yet another Catholic had a go at reg- regime change. Uh, William Parry was trialled and found guilty of trying to assass- planning to assassinate Queen Elizabeth with all these regular Catholic conspiracies many linked to the Catholic superpower of the day Spain and also endorsed by the pa- you know by the Pope it's not hard to see why Elizabeth and her government started to feel under attack from her Catholic subjects. Uh, maybe maybe it's a little bit like, you know, the McCarthy anti, anti-communist uh, campaign in 1950s America. If you look hard enough, you'll see conspiracies everywhere. And um, there was no greater anti-Catholic witch hunter than Elizabeth's spymaster, Sir Francis Walsingham. He was convinced that both Mary was far more involved in these conspiracies than she admitted to, and that whilst she was alive... She was a rallying point for future Catholic plots in England. And he was determined to, as the phrase goes, give her enough rope to hang herself. In 1556, another Catholic gentleman, a young 24-year-old, Anthony Babington, formulated yet another plan to get rid of what he saw as the heretic Queen Elizabeth and restore England to Catholicism. The plan, assassinate Elizabeth, and replace her with Mary Queen of Scots. Now quite how early Walsingham find out, found out about the plot is hard to say. Uh, but he did find out. And he, uh, he relaxed security around uh, Qu- Mary Queen of Scots. So that messages could pass from the conspirators to her. Messages that whilst they were in cipher code were being read by Walsingham and his team. So far so good for Walsingham. He knew Mary was aware of the Babington plot, but being aware of it wasn't what the wily spymaster wanted. He wanted Mary's prints, as it were, on the metaphorical smoking gun. On the 6th of July, Babington wrote to Mary specifically explaining the plan. Using the cipher, Mary replied encouragingly, on the 17th of July. This was the evidence that Walsingham had been waiting for. In her own hand, Mary was encouraging Catholics to overthrow the Queen of England, her hostess, and accepted their invitation to replace her. Fotheringhay Castle in Northamptonshire had been a palace of Catherine of Aragon's. It was actually um, tended to be the palace of all of Henry VIII's wives, but since he had died and you know, 30 years beforehand, it had been allowed to become dilapidated. And it was to this shabby castle that Mary, Queen of Scots, was brought for her trial on the 14th of October, 1586. The charge was treason, which was an interesting choice of charge, seeing as Mary was technically um, not a subject of the Queen. Elizabeth's advisers argued, however, that she'd been under the Queen's protection for the past 19 years, which sort of made her a subject. And furthermore, she was actively conspiring to have Elizabeth overthrown and murdered and replaced by herself. Um, There couldn't really be any other charge that she could could be put on trial for. Mary faced a court of 36 noble men. Uh, Not a single woman was present. Walsingham and the Queen's Chief Minister, Robert Cecil, wanted this one over fast. Mary was allowed no legal representation. She wasn't allowed to review any of the evidence against her, and she wasn't able to call any witnesses. The verdict was never in doubt. 35 nobles found her guilty of treason. Only Lord Zouch dissented. Elizabeth now dithered for over three months. Not only was Mary kith and kin, but she was also a monarch. If... Elizabeth endorsed a trial and then an execution of a monarch. What precedent would that set, not least for her, if any future Catholic conspiracy or invasion proved successful? Christmas passed. New Year passed. Eventually, in February, she signed the order of execution. And even then, she wasn't sure. Maybe she wasn't sure but her councillors and ministers were. This was it. This was the moment they were looking for. And before the Queen of England could change her mind, the order was raced up to Fotheringhay as fast as a horse could gallop. At 8 a.m. on the 8th of February, 1587, Mary Queen of Scots entered the great hall at Fotheringhay Castle. Dressed in black, she stepped up onto the hastily assembled scaffold. Casting off her long black dress, she stood resplendent once more in a crimson dress and brown crimson sleeves. The signs of Catholic martyrdom. The beheading of the Queen of Scots was a macabre, botched job. The executioner missed her neck completely on his first attempt, driving the axe into the top of her back. His next swing did hit the mark, but it failed to sever her head. And whilst Mary was now dead, The executioner was reduced to using a saw to actually cut off her head. And at the end of this grisly exercise, he held up her head by the hair and raised it aloft to utter the words, Here dies a traitor. Unfortunately, Mary had been wearing a wig and her head fell to the ground, leaving the executioner waving the wig in the air. The once beautiful Queen of Scots had died with short grey hair under her wig in a macabre execution, in a drafty hall, in a dilapidated castle, which now no longer exists, save for a small mound. All the promise and opportunity of those early years had come to this. As a teenager, she was Queen of Scotland and of France. She was married to a drunken abuser. She was deposed from her f- throne, a mother who hadn't seen her child since he was one years old. Under house arrest in a foreign country for 19 years, and finally after a trial in a kangaroo court, she died in a botched execution. And so ends one of the saddest stories in British royal history. Mary, Queen of Scots, was buried in nearby Peterborough Cathedral. The Catholic world was aghast. Pope Sixtus V renewed the papal bull against Elizabeth and now included a regicide in her list of crimes. It was the duty, he said, of all good Catholics to overthrow Elizabeth. Well, that would have to be done by someone other than Anthony Babington. The 24-year-old and 13 of his co-conspirators were also found guilty of treason and hanged, drawn and quartered. The Catholic gentry of England were running out of steam, but across the ocean a Catholic prince was finally stirring. Philip II of Spain, Elizabeth's former brother-in-law, decided it was time to act. If the English Catholics couldn't get rid of Elizabeth, he would, by force of arms. And he began to gather an army of invasion and a fleet to transport them. Elizabeth and England were about to meet his mighty armada.